Hello everyone, Annie Mack here and this is Changes, a podcast where we discuss change and how it affects a whole host of very interesting people that I interview. On this week's episode, episode five, my guest is Wad Al-Khatib. I've been wanting to chat with Wad ever since I watched her film For Sama. For Sama is a film where Wad documented her life on camera while she was living in war-torn Aleppo in Syria. While conflict, violence, death and cruelty raged around her, she fell in love. She got married and she had a baby daughter. They ended up living in a hospital where her husband Hamza worked. And the film that came out of all this for Sama, everyone that's watched it has just been knocked for six. It's one of those films that once you see it, you can't ever forget it. It's essentially a love letter from a young mother to her daughter. But most importantly, it's an account of war that is the opposite of what you see on the news. Wad is a campaigner, she's an activist, she's fierce and tough and uh, has been through so much but is so passionate about her message which is about getting as much attention as possible to Syria and to the problems that still exist there. We recorded this conversation way back in February actually so I have spoken to her since and got a little update of how she is and you're going to hear that at the end but for now please enter the podcast Wad Al-Khatib. Wad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Um, I wanted to start by congratulating you on another huge nomination for For Sama. Thank you. Let's start with um, the film itself. It begins with you as a student in Aleppo. Are you originally from Aleppo? Yeah, I am from Aleppo. Okay, and then you moved away and then you came back as a student, right? Yeah. What was it like living there um, when you were a student? So before the revolution, I would say, like, we've never thought... Or felt that we are like Syrian and we are proud that we are Syrian. All my generation, all my friends, we were all just thinking about how we want to finish our study and get out of Syria. I was doing a Deutsch course. My plan was to finish my economics and go out to Germany to continue my like okay. studies. Yeah. There's no future in our country because everything is related to the government. So much corruption and everything. Like there's no good way to live without being involved in that. Mm. We have so many phrases which we, like we grow up hearing that. One of this was like, oh, the wall has ears, so you can't even speak to yourself about anything. We have another thing that it's became a joke, but it's true. Something truly like happening in our country. More than three people who gathering to talk, one of them should be like from the security forces. Wow. Even if you saw something in your dream, the security forces know about that. Just like, you know, you feel that everything is controlled by them. Okay. And what would happen if you did kind of write something or speak out? Or were people too afraid to do that? I don't think any newspaper in Syria could bear, like, you know, to publish that. So all the newspapers are run or, or kind of... Yeah, yeah they the were government. like afraid of themselves, afraid of yeah. each other, afraid of like your family, afraid of your... Mm. It's so hard. And that's when, you know, when the revolution started, like it broke everything. It make us feel that this is the first time we can like not just to speak, but even like hear our voices. Mm. We were before like the deaf and dumb people and suddenly you can speak, you can run, you can like mm. see, you know, and just something we've never expected that could happen. Mm. There's a line in the film that says about Assad being in government when, when Sama's grandfather was a child since then. Yeah, it's now, you know, it's 50 years. Before the revolution, what was the general kind of perspective from the people on Assad? 
So in 2000, when Assad's father has died yeah. and Bashar, the son, became like ruling Syria, in our law, in our constitution, the president should be 36 years old. Mm. And he was 34. In 15 minutes, they edit the constitution and make it like age of the president should be 34. 34. Mm. So they make it for him like particularly. And without the whole, like what we called like the MPs that we have, they, all of them, they voted for that directly. Mm. And no need even to, to vote, you know, they will do that anyway. But when uh, like Bashar Assad was ruling Syria, we, not me, but I mean, like I was so uh, young at that time, but most of the people were so optimistic about him. Like he's uh, a doctor, he was uh, studying here in the UK. Yeah. And then, like, he got married to Asma, which is, like, a Western, like, Syrian West Eng English woman. Wow. Okay. And she's, like, from Ealing here, from London. So, wow. yeah, she's, like, she knows what freedom means. She knows what democracy means. People in Syria were very optimistic about the new generation of our life. Yeah. But then, like, suddenly it became, like, everything as it is. The law, it's the same. And we were really shocked about how the government, how... Assad regime started to react to the peaceful protests where they were literally shooting like directly to people, arrested many people. Sometimes even if the protests were like 20 people, after the protest, 50 people were arrested. Everyone even around, everyone watching, everyone, you know, looking at that. There's a, there's a very, very powerful scene uh, at the start of the film where you see dead bodies laid out on the ground in Aleppo that have been dragged out of the water, out of the river. That is a reaction from the regime to the revolution. Am I right in saying yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they just killed random civilians and, and threw them in the river. Exactly. Threw them from in the river, which coming from the regime area to the area where the opposition... Like, Knowing that they yeah. would float down the river. Exactly. And most of these people like who've been found in the river, their families lived in this area. You know, they arrested them on the checkpoints and they killed them. They sent them into the river to tell the people that no one can be out of our control. And if you will be out, this is what could happen. Wow. And obviously that created more anger. Of course, yeah. Right. Like create also like um, dividing between mm. the same city, two sides, you know, mm. like dividing also the, the family itself or the community itself. Mm. What age were you then? I was 21. Okay, so 21 years old. You picked up your camera. Yeah. What made you want to do that? Uh, it's basically the, the, the lack of the information that we have. Uh, we were going to the university normally and then the protest happened and we started like, joining this protest. And 20 students like chanting a lot of exciting things for us like the freedom or democracy, dignity. Mm. And... We don't know exactly what does that mean, you know. We don't know what the opposite. We don't experience yeah, it. But yeah. we know the opposite of that, which we were yeah. living through. Yeah. So we joined that and like suddenly you, you start like 20 people who, who they don't have gun, just student, which we, you know they all, chanting very nice, great things. It's not like death to Assad. It's exactly. like freedom, dignity. Yeah. yeah. And then you've seen like maybe 40 security forces coming with their like huge yeah. guns and... Uh, uniform and start to beating this student, arrested them in, in front of the whole people. And 
two minutes after that, you can see like big camera coming with a very nice presenter and saying like, everything you've seen coming out from Aleppo University today is fake. Everything is fine. Everything is good. And this is now an interview with one student. So what happened today is in Aleppo University? So the student, of course, will say like, oh, nothing happened. We were just here like chilling out with our friends. Look, everything is fine. And that was the formal channel like presenting out. And, you know, we've seen what happened two minutes ago. And now you are presenting everything like totally different. So it was our role to take our mobile phones, our cameras, like anything, you know, and like record. Every picture was make difference. Every Mm. video was make difference. And it's really the only thing we can do at that time. When was the first time that you realized that your footage was making a difference? You know, when were you able to get it out of Syria and understand that people were really watching it and, and reacting to it? Like it wasn't basically my footage, but it's like... At the beginning of the revolution, like we felt that so important, any picture could stand against all this propaganda. Yeah. It will really make difference for us first to understand that, yes, this is happening. When you lived through that situation for like 30 years or 40 years, you can't really imagine that anyone could like have courage, you know, to stand against this yeah. brutal regime. And really every picture was encouraging us to go and join these people and to protest with them and be just be ourselves, be our voices. We heard the news first coming from Tun- Tunisia and then from Egypt. And then we were like, could that happen in Syria? I remember the first time I heard the voice of a revolution protest inside Aleppo University. I was like, does I'm hearing right or not? So and someone on a loudspeaker kind of? Like, no, they just like chanting okay. in very like loud uh, yeah. sound. And I remember I ran to the place where just I want to see Mm. And I, f- I was freezing in my place. I couldn't chant. I couldn't film. I couldn't do anything. I was just like, just freezing. Mm. And the second one, I was able to join, you know, but the first one, I literally couldn't do anything. Mm. It's so hard to, like, as, as someone who grew up in the Western world, to even imagine feeling like you're in prison to that point where you can't actually say what you think in public. It's just mad. Yeah. Okay, so the regime cracked down in, in, a, in a horrific way. At that time, you then kind of stayed in, in East Aleppo, right? And you kind of had a bit of a community of people around you. And then you you were friends with Hamza already. The hospital kind of started around then, right? Yeah, like it was, the revolution started 15 of March 2011. Okay. okay. And the hospital was like started to be set up in October 2012. Okay, so yeah, a year and a bit. Yeah, a year yeah. and a bit. Yeah, yeah. The hospital was started after the revolution in Syria changed from the peaceful demonstrations to military. And part of Aleppo city was announced that its area out of the regime control. So forces can't get in because there are some people who start to carry weapons and defend these areas. Wow. So everyone who's wanted by the regime, like us, for example, we were at Aleppo University, but we were so famous that we are protesting. They start to like do huge campaigning of arresting students. So your lives were very much in danger. So we moved all together to that area. Wow. And in that way, when uh, the regime started to shell this area, like people start to flood the the area, then people back to the area and they lived under that circumstances. And that's where the hospital was set up because there's so many civilians in the area 
How big was the area, would you say, at the time that you were setting up the hospital? It's like literally 70% of Aleppo city. Wow, so it's quite yeah, big. quite big. And yeah. also it's related to the countryside, where mm. the whole countryside was freed from the regime. Because most of the police officers in that area or the security forces who were like... Uh, serving the regime in that area. They were from these villages. Mm. They lived their whole life in that village. So they didn't stand against the people because they are their families, their friends. They know them for a long time. So they suddenly these people started to be like against the regime. And that's why, like, let's say in 2013, the beginning of that, more than 80% of Syria was out of the regime control. Wow. Wow. So Assad is panicking. Yeah. And that's why suddenly... From nowhere, ISIS started to appear. Interesting, because that's another thing I wanted to ask, because over here in the West, yeah. we got served a lot of footage about of, of ISIS, you know, as being the kind, of, the, the kind of villains of this whole thing. It felt like they overtook Assad in terms of when, when, you know, when anyone thought of Syria, they thought of ISIS. But in fact, they didn't have that big a part to play. Yeah, right? if you looked at any research coming out from big center research yeah. or educational center research, you can see that, like, it's literally the numbers. It's more than 85% of the destruction and death in Syria is caused by Assad regime. Mm. 5% is by ISIS. The main fear was always from ISIS, not for us, for the for you, for the people who live here. But for us was so clear that they were like one of the tools that the regime used to convince people that it's not about freedom and dignity, it's about religion, it's yeah. about it's a religious terrorists. Yeah. Yep. And what... People maybe here doesn't know, but you can read that in very like specific way in different research. As I mentioned that in 2012, like late of that, the regime announced that they will release many activists from their prisons. But instead of doing that, they were arresting the people who are students from the universities and people who are like protesting every day against the regime. And they release all the people who were in his presence for years, like 20 years or 10 years. Mm. And most of these people, they became later on like leaders of ISIS and Jubhat al-Nusra. Mm. It was just like one of the cards that the regime very easily, you know, started to use. They know that these people will do a lot of mess. Wow. They knew that they so will. So they release yeah. them in order to provide a distraction from their own. Exactly. Mentality. And also the misinformation, you know, like if he left them in his presence, Nothing could happen. All right, what can you tell me about the first big change in your life that we can talk about today? One of the biggest changes that happened in my life, I think, having summer and being a mom. At what point did you? And Hamza stopped being friends and start being lovers. So we were like friends in the first year of the revolution in at Aleppo University when we started like protesting with each other. And suddenly you can feel that community who changed around you. Like your friends is not your friends, but your friends who is the people who are like joining the protests with I you. I see, yeah. And start like to shape different kind of like structure of relationship and even family, even like mm. so strange things. But for us was so clear that, yes, this is the people who we share our destiny with. We became friends on social media and on the ground, but we didn't even know that we are the same people. Mm. And after a while, when we moved to East part of Aleppo, we had that like very great relationship 
And the hospital was a place where I can live because I came just as a woman alone. So to, you needed to, to be safe. Yeah. I need to be like have any safe environment for people to understand what I'm doing here, why mm. I'm here. And the hospital was the easy place because there's some nurses and female doctors who you can like stay with. And it's center of everything. So it was like, this is a place where I can stay. I took some of this like very first courses just to know what to do in case anything happened with me or around me. And many nurses come, doctors, and then we start like feel that we are kind of family. Mm. Two years after that, really was so clear that me and Hamza is like not just friends. Mm. And we both wanted to share that life together. At the same time, we, we were so scared that the loss could be double now. Yeah, it's like and, the fear yeah. of falling in love and exactly. having your heart break. And, oh, exactly. It's not even about a relationship, it's about being bombed. It's like a whole other element of danger. Yeah, oh. but then you feel like, you know, I, I don't know what I'm waiting for. You know, yeah. we decided both that we will stay in this place for the whole of our life. Mm. We don't know if we will make it out or not. We don't know how long it could be. If we knew that this is one month, we could not do that, but like... We don't know. We stuck here together. Mm. And that's why we really like decided we just want to get married. And three months later, we just wanted to bring a child to this world. That's so that was a conscious decision to bring Sama into the world. Yeah. Actually, when we got married, we we had that very honest conversation about like, yeah, we both don't want children to be here. And we were like, yeah, fine. Maybe if we felt that we are settled down a little bit and the situation like became better. Mm. And three months later, we had the same <laughs> conversation like in the opposite way about like, yeah, we don't know what we are waiting here. We decide to stay here. We will set up our life. We are a family. So let's just do it here. And that's it. We were so excited about that. We were also so scared at the same time. Mm. But literally, there's something from the life itself telling you all the time, like, hairs need to be like a life. Here's mm. your life. Here's your life. Mm. The scenes that you depict in that in that emergency room of people coming in and out and, and you know, desperate families and just absolute, you know, horrific scenes of tragedy and blood. You talk about crying blood, blood everywhere. How was it daily life living in that space? Like, you know, when you are, when I was there, I've never have a chance to think about that. Yeah. Like, you're really just living in that through bit that. Where, yeah. where you, you said that you cried and Hamza was like, no, yeah. you can't cry here. Yeah. You have to go somewhere else. You know what? We were going out some days to Turkey, like... It was like hell when you are outside and you just want to be back, you know, like, I don't know how to explain this really, but to be living there, it's more easier than sitting here watching how that. Though? How? Because you're helping, because you're doing something about it? You are busy it? with something. You are... Yeah. Okay, you're not like, helpless. Yeah. yeah, and you are also like, even if it's not difference, but you are making difference to some people, even yeah. with like with kind words, you know, even if it's just like to smile to someone. I don't want to like be like, you know, I'm trying just to say that, but it's like, it's truly the life there and everything mm. else out of that is like fake. I don't know how to... No, it makes really total that. sense. Yeah. yeah, because you're confronted every day with, with life and death, so nothing else matters. But daily, like for you and Sama, yeah. what did you do? So I would say like in many places, I almost forget or forgot where I was. I'm a young mom. I have my first child. I'm yeah. so excited about that. I'm so happy about that. I'm really trying to invest in every minute of that relationship. At the same time, you know, like so much fears all the time. It's, it's all complicated to each other. Like you can't really separate them. You can't feel like, oh, one moment of happiness 
and later on women of fears, but it's all mixed between each other. Mm. Just like the fact that you're trying to ignore everything around and focus about this minute, you are really li- living that. Yeah. For the very basic things that we have, like the milk, the nappies, all of this, before the siege, everything was available. And because we had access to Turkey, so I can have any milk, you have it here in the UK. Mm. I can mm. have nappies, which people use here on in America. So I can have any great stuff as I want as any mom all over the world. But just like the fact of the fears about you don't know the sound of the aircraft, which is like flying up. You don't know when this could be like you. Just to think about the other mothers in the city, the other mothers who just like lost their child or one of their children being injured, you know, like to see that all the time all over around you. You can't not think about yourself and your child in that position in every second exactly. Mm. Many times when we were so close to that death and it wasn't us, but you still think it's it's not me now, but maybe tomorrow, maybe after an hour. Mm. You can't plan about tomorrow. You can't plan about even night. I'm living now. I will do the best I can do for me, for my child. I will enjoy that. And just don't think about anything. What was the closest you came to death? Do you want one thing I remember? or I mean, is there loads? God. I yeah. Mean, yeah. But like one of the moments I went um, to see Salim and Afra and their kids just like chatting. So this is this nice. wonderful family. Yeah. What's the mum called? Afra? Afra, yeah. Oh, what I really wanted to ask you what happened to them because they're just such a beautiful family. Yeah, I will tell you now. But okay. Good. I, I went to see them a little bit. I was like so feeling bad and I took Sama with me. So they live in the same uh, street where the hospital is, which yeah. is like literally three blocks away from the hospital. And I get down on the stairs. I have Sama and I have the camera. And we, I just like say bye-bye. I'm going now back to the hospital. It seems like everything around is okay. Like no sound of aircrafts, nothing. And I went down and then the sound of the aircraft started to be like be louder i run a little bit like more faster and then literally i entered the gate of the hospital and i don't know what happened behind me just an a very big explosion of like something as a shelling or something literally if i was late 3 seconds i will not be and my and sama like survived and i gave sama to someone and just like sit down on the stairs i can't imagine that we we are alive then the injured people start to come out, come inside from outside. Everyone I see in my way, they were coming like oh. as injured people. And one of the, the neighbors who was killed in that attack is like uh, maybe like 75 years old, a very old man. You don't know destiny and you can't, I don't know what to think about that, you know, but like we made it out, but we could have not made it. And why these people? Why not us? There's a line that you say in the film about grief and about in Aleppo, there is no time for grief. Yeah, exactly. Talking about the kind of prolificness of, of, of death all around you. And, and, you know, if you let it get to you, then you won't be able to get anything done. Now that you are out of Aleppo and kind of had a chance, maybe, I don't know if you not have. Not yet. You haven't had a chance no. to process it. Since... I started working on For Summer one month after we left Aleppo. For me, it was harder than living that. I'm looking to the all these five years in videos, starting to explain to the people about who is this man, who is this woman, why that, why this happened. Here's, we felt like this, we feel here like this. 
and go again and again, you know, around this footage. We really worked so hard for like so many hours in the day. And sometimes I was coming back home like 7 or 8 or even 10 p.m. And when I'm back at home, I should have been back happy because I have two little kids. which And you're safe. Yeah, and you need just to be happy for them. You can't Mm. even process what you've seen as a material. Mm. And then we just finished the film in March 2018. And since that time until now, and I'm doing what I'm doing now, which Mm. is press, sharing the film, telling people more about the story, which for me, you know, like it's better for me not to process anything now. Mm. I really want to focus on doing something, Mm. make difference in what I've went through. I don't want to be taking my time now and being destroyed and being not able to do great stuff which I have. Mm, I understand. Yeah, yeah. You might you might um, melt, you might fall apart a little bit and you need to have the space to do that and you need to be somewhere safe where you can do that. Yeah, yeah but also you need to be like, yeah. I can't think now about myself and my daughters and yeah. my husband and everything we went through while I know that as we're speaking now, there's other mothers and families yeah. living now in the street because an attack happened next to their house. Yeah. So this is still happening and that giving me a lot of responsibility. Not just think about what I'm suffering now, what is my pain now. No, it's like it's nothing it's not about because we are safe now. Yeah. But there's many other women and families who can't be safe. Right, what what would you say is the next big change that you had to navigate in your life? It was a displacement. We were forced to flee. We were displaced from our country. That's why we, when we left, it wasn't... I think if it was our choice, and if we had the choice to stay or to leave, and we decided to leave, you know, we will not be sad as we were. But because it wasn't our decision, it was just like, this is the only option we have. And Russia and the regime, with the help of, of the UN and other like governments all over the world, they decided, let's take these civilians and displace them out, mm-hmm. which is another crime, you know. Of course. But yeah. in, that, in their way, they were like, yeah, they saved the people in Aleppo. Mm. We couldn't believe that because we had a chance to leave many times before. And you kept coming we back. Didn't, yeah. We didn't want to do that because we really believe that this is our country and this is what we should do. But then when you forced to flee, everything you were trying to sacrifice or to do, everyone who sacrificed himself or herself before from our friends, everyone we lost, it seems just like for us at that second that it went for nothing. And we couldn't think about it in any positive way. We should be happy because we are all okay, but you can't think about that. So have you changed at all in the way you're thinking about it? Or I'm still so? trying to, yeah. to be honest, really, to create that hope that nothing could last forever. We are the refugee now, and Assad and all his like authorities, people, they still like in power and they're still in Syria. And now the whole country is under their control. But what we are doing now is important to keep going and insist that what happened in, th- in Syria shouldn't be just like ignored. Mm. And we still need to think about how we can make the accountability and justice as soon as possible. Mm. There's more than three million people who are living under that circumstances until today. And just focus about how we can give them any solidarity or like any support in a way or another. Keep the story going and not let the world be busy about something else and not thinking about how Assad is really bad. If anything could happen right now, what would it be? Assad being 
killed or removed or been judged, maybe. Mm. Yeah, in a court of war, maybe. Yeah. yeah. We need that to change. Yeah. The person who was responsible of killing, like, I don't know, 500,000, 1 million people of Syria, and the person who's responsible of displaced, like now there's 6 million refugees all over the world. One of the things why, why Forsama is so, so impactful as a viewer is because I've never seen anything like this when it comes to watching or learning or understanding about war because it comes through your eyes. How have people reacted to the film? While we were working on the film, we, I've never yeah. expected that people really would be engaged and like interested about the film in this way. We've been told a lot that people will not come to watch another Syrian film and people is like very bored about refugees, blood, etc. And I really was almost like convinced by this idea. And for me was, I don't care even if no one will come to watch this film. This film need to be exist and need to be as reference and as an evidence of all these war crimes, mm. I will do what I should do as my responsibility and make the film available. Mm. And if it's just like for us as Syrians or for us, for me personally, you know, to show my daughter, I will do that. And this so is, you'll show your daughter? Yeah. yeah. But then when the first screening, uh, we were at uh, South by Southwest in America in Austin. Mm. And I literally said through the audience, I just wanted to count how many people will leave before the film, the film will be finished. And I was like, literally like shocked that no one left. We finish, we get out, everyone just wants to come and speak with us. And I thought like, it's strange, but maybe it's just because this place, then that's, you know, like continued through the whole festivals all over the world from Mexico, you know, to like Germany, to Spain, to Norway. UK here, like it was amazing reaction. And people not just care or interested or just they want to know, but also the great question in every screening we had that, what can we do? Mm. Or please like, tell us what can we do? Tell us mm. what, I, I'm, I'm a teacher, please tell me, can I do anything for the people who are still in Syria now? Mm. And you know, like all these great questions give you a lot of feeling that people really want to do something. Yeah. They care about these people. And that's actually why we launch our impact campaign, Action for Summer. Mm -hmm. uh, which we associate with many great people like in different sectors and yeah. in this place like uh, Choose Love, Help Refugee and the Syria Campaign, Physician for Human Rights, different uh, places where people can really uh, put all their efforts to make a little bit of difference for yeah. these people. Yeah. D tell us more about that campaign. So it's on it's on forsama.com, right? Yeah, you can go to actionforsama.com. Action for Summer, yeah. Or like action at Action for Summer on social media. There's many like small things where people can be involved and engaged more to do something more about Syria, mm. to educate yourself, to spread the word about the film, to donate in different like levels. Gather any art you can do inspired by the film or inspired by Syria story which you know or mm. if you all already involved in any work before so please like share that with us mm. so we're just trying to like build the whole message our main message about stop bombing hospitals we hold that sign in Cannes so, Film Festival on yeah. the red carpet yeah. we did that ago, uh, like two weeks ago in a national board of review uh, we got uh, an award about freedom of expression mm. and we shared the same message again and we keeping continue to shed the light on Syria and on what's happening right now. Mm, wonderful. Let's talk quickly about Sama. How, you know, now that she's out of it, how do you think that whole experience for her affected her? 
she's so unique. You can notice that even if you don't know anything about her, but just like how she reacts to anything happening around, being so practical, being so strong and so tough and so kind in the in very like surprising way. Yeah, this is I would say like the positive reaction of what's happening but also at the same time we had very tough time right after we left like nightmares she wasn't just like walking up and cry she wasn't crying she was kind of scream and she couldn't express herself now she's much much better we had very like great consultation from many doctors and therapists all of them said that usual children enter two years old if they went through very tough situation that's like stay with them for a long time so Mm -hmm. he said like now she's fine but you don't know when everything could be back again yeah but she was loved continuously all the way through that and you know you see her being passed from people to people and I thought that one of the scenes that really got me in the film is when you went to Turkey and then you decided to come back and kind of fight your way through the siege and come back to the hospital and seeing the joy of your friends and kind of community's face when when and as you said that when they saw Sama it was like a sign such a sign of kind of solidarity and hope for them right exactly yeah she was literally I said that in the film but she's like the daughter of the whole hospital not just mine yeah yeah and for you and Hamza to come back with her was such a kind of a a statement of of kind of intent and and kind of love for them right yeah yeah when do you think you will go back, if ever. So, like, I really hope to be back as soon as possible, like today, mm-hmm. tomorrow. But we still have that feeling that anything could happen in Syria. We know the situation is not good now, and we don't want the situation to be good to be back. The only thing we want is Assad to be out of control so we can be back and do what we should do and take our responsibility and our rules as, like, Syrian citizen who they should do something in their country. But as... Assad still controlling Syria. I don't think none of these like six million refugees could be back if he stayed controlling Syria. In the film, when you when you leave, it's a very tense moment where you're in the car and you're trying to get past the front line and it goes black. And then I we hear your voice just going, Hamza, we made it, we made it through. I wanted to know what happened after that. Where do you go after that? So we went to Adlib city and this is the place where now it's under attack. Yeah. Uh, all the people who were displaced from Aleppo, they live now there. And this is literally why I'm like focusing yeah. a lot about what's happening right now. Because if I wasn't here now, I will be there. I will have the same experience again and again happening. And because Hamza is a doctor, so he had a very um, like a special permission for all the doctors inside Syria to get through the Turkish border. It took us two weeks to convince them that I'm his wife and I'm pregnant and I had Sama and we need to go all together Mm -hmm. just to see our family for a while. And then we we want to be back. And then uh, when we crossed the border and we met our family and and then I came the first time to the UK to to meet the people in Channel 4 News and start thinking and speaking about the film. Then when we went back to Turkey, the situation was like so much worse inside Syria. We were just like decided now to stay in Turkey and see how the situation will be. And then when we decided just like it doesn't seem that anything could be changed in the next five years. So what are we going to do now? And then we decided to come here to the UK and claim asylum. Yeah. And your family are still in Turkey? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell me about your friends, the beautiful family. Where so, do they go? Yeah, they are now in Turkey. Also. Okay, wonderful. And we met them last August. We had like quite a good time together. 
the kids at the schools and Xalem um, Afra both are working, but mm. it's like the situation in Turkey is not good for the refugees and they don't have even the right like to claim asylum or something. They have something called like temporary protection ID where could be taken from them at any second and could like let them send back to Syria as mm. many other people had that before. Literally don't know like It's what to kind do. of living always without a final answer isn't exactly. it it's so yeah. hard to do yeah Wad thank you so much it's thank so you. fascinating to speak to you I'm just in awe of you you are 28 yes. 28 and yes. you're a mother of two and you've lived more of a life than anyone I've ever met yeah I feel like I'm 80 yeah. <laughs> I'm not surprised what you've been So that was Wad Al-Khatib, such an impressive woman, I think you'll agree. That interview was recorded back in February, uh, which seems like about a year ago now. But I have a little bit more now from me and Wad that we recorded last week. There was lots of kind of lingering questions that I had. So this is me and Wad from last week. Well, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. Uh, I wanted to speak to you again because even though we had that conversation in February, it feels like a year ago and there's lots to talk about. How are you coping in this lockdown? Oh, my God. I think so many people who is hearing us now, they have the same feeling. Exactly. It's amazing to be at home, specifically for me after a year of like just touring around. But at the same time, you know, like this fears of... We don't know when, we don't know why, we don't know how to pass over this. We can't do anything to help, you know, we just need to stay home. Yeah, it's kind of like having fun a little bit with the kids and feeling relaxed. How are things in Idlib? I guess one of the biggest problems with COVID is that it has eclipsed all the other bad news on the planet. How are things in Idlib? How is the state of play over there? The people who are now living in Syria, they even can't be in lockdown as we are doing now here. There's so many people who doesn't have homes to stay at. They don't have access to water like we have here. The medical system already is very tired and very weak. So they already doesn't need any more problems to add for what they already deal with in from the bombing to the shelling to the lack of all the medical supplies so unfortunately like the situation is not good at all and the people there may be kind of uh, uh, like relief a little bit because because of COVID-19 now the bombing and the shelling stops for a while but we don't know why at the same time the whole world is busy with their own problems and no one really caring about these people Um, even like the UN, they didn't give Idlib any tests for the COVID-19. You can imagine now because we understand that, I don't know, one million people living in a camp. So imagine how these uh, basic services that they are living with. I just can't stop thinking about them while we are sitting at home. One of the things that struck me the most um, about our original conversation was you saying, that you had just been too busy in this kind of big, long forward motion, trying to raise awareness on Syria and on Onforsama. Have you, with this enforced lockdown, been in a situation where you can finally start processing what happened to you over the last five years? Unfortunately, not yet. Um, I'm working with Channel 4 News. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in the lockdown now, but uh, I went to a hospital for eight days Uh, last month, uh, we did one hour documentary from the area. 
and uh, I did also another report about refugee doctors and I'm still trying to find a new stories related to COVID-19 in this time. So just like being in the hospital, that was something really like a challenge for me because this is the first time I'm back to film in a hospital, but in totally different situation. And with this pandemic, it was something I couldn't not be emotional with this, but it was really important thing to do. Also, tell me about your archives. I saw on actionforsama.com that you have donated your archives um, of the filming of Forsama to the investigation of Assad for war yeah. crimes. Yeah, we we were working on this um, since September last year. And finally, after a very, very long process of like watching all the material and name them and organize them in a way that they need, we were able to submit all the archives that we have related to attacking hospitals and targeting hospitals to the IIIM, which this mechanism of gathering a war crime evidence, hoping one day we will, uh, they will like work in a trail or something. Wad, thank you so much for the little catch up. I wish you all the luck. You are now a Channel 4 news reporter, a homeschooler and a parent uh, full time. I'm, I'm wishing you all the luck and take care. Thank you so much for you and for everyone. Massive, massive thanks to Wad Al-Khatib for this episode. If you haven't yet, go watch Forsama. You can see it for free right now on all four. It's really, really vital, vital watching. It's visceral. It will hit you in the heart and um, it's really important. So yeah, if you can watch it, do watch it and send it to all your friends. And then of course, connect with Wad. She's at Wad Al-Khatib on Twitter and Instagram. And you spell that W-A-A-D-A-L-K-A-T-E-A-B, Wad Al-Khatib. And next week, we have Clover Stroud, another amazing woman. She's a mother of five. She's an author of a book called My Wild and Sleepless Nights that made me cry like a baby when I was reading it. Um, She has suffered enormous, overwhelming amounts of trauma in her life and has just dealt with it in such a courageous and inspiring way. So we will speak to Clover next week about motherhood, about all the different sides of it. She's very good at writing about the dark sides of motherhood that isn't spoken about much. Um, And we'll be speaking about, you know, all the tragedy in her life and also the really, really kind of uh, inspiring parts of how she's got through that. Uh, Just love, just plain and simple love. So, yeah, very great conversation with Clover Stroud next week. Uh, This episode was produced by Matt Hill with support from Louise Mason at Rethink Audio. Thank you as always for listening. Go check us out and subscribe to us and write a review on Apple Podcasts if you fancy. And I'll see you next week for more. Okay, bye.